Hello and welcome to Technicast, an academic podcasting community. My name is Polly and together with Julian, we look at different themes each month and invite PhD researchers to share their work with us. This month, we're unpicking historical threads of thought and unravelling ideas around the theme of materials. So last time, Julian spoke to Rose Coffee about augmented reality filters on Instagram and how they act as digital forms of dress. Today, we start off by journeying back to 1325 to think about a speech that Queen Isabella of France gave and how she communicated not through words, but by conscious decisions around dress. We are delighted to welcome Ella Muir, who is a postdoctoral candidate at the University of Roehampton, where she researches queenly clothing and material culture in England and France during the 16th century. I'll be back at the end of the episode to speak with Ella a little bit more about her research. But for now, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Ella to the podcast and her paper, which is titled Clothing Queens in England and France, 1515 to 1547. We hope you enjoy. I feel that marriage is a joining together of man and woman, maintaining the undivided habit of life, and that someone has come between my husband and myself trying to break this bond. I protest that I will not return until this intruder is removed, but discarding my marriage garment shall assume the robes of widowhood and mourning until I am avenged of this Pharisee. In the winter of 1325, Queen Isabella of France, defiant and dressed in widow's weeds, made this public declaration. She had arrived in France earlier that year, acting as a diplomatic ambassador on behalf of her husband, Edward II of England. Dismayed by the rapid rise of Hugh Dispenser the Younger, the king's favourite, and a series of increasingly humiliating acts against her, as a lady in grief who had lost her lord, Isabella now publicly refused Edward's orders to return. Her actions were recorded for posterity by the anonymous author of the Vita Edwardi Secundi, a contemporary Latin chronicle documenting the life and rather unfortunate times of one of England's most infamous monarchs. In the 14th century, at a time when royal women were invariably expected to demonstrate absolute deference to their husbands, Isabella's obstinance was a fairly extraordinary event. Rejecting Edward's demands, she dangled instead the possibility of tentative obedience, contingent on his agreement to settle her grievances and oust her rivals. In her birth country of France, protected by the power of her brother, King Charles IV, Isabella began gathering to her an alliance of English exiles. This included one of Edward's old foes, the nobleman Roger Mortimer, 1st Earl of March, who had escaped the Tower of London and fled following his failed rebellion against the King and the Dispenser family three years before. The nature and nuance of Isabella and Mortimer's close relationship has been subject to as much speculation as Edward and Dispenser's. But whatever had transgressed between them, one thing was clear. On foreign soil, the Queen was flagrantly fraternising with the enemy and openly challenging the authority of the King. Isabella's speech in 1325 was sensational. Its impact would have been felt throughout a court ravaged by inner conflict and the rise of unfavourable favourites. But most striking of all to my mind was the Queen's decision to bolster the impact of this brazen insubordination through her attire. 
Adopting the garb synonymous with bereavement and grief, Isabella metaphorically cast aside her wedding dress and invoked the image of sombre mourning robes to declare her husband dead to her. A sartorial flourish to symbolically underscore her verbal and physical defiance. Because Isabella knew, as we do today, that what we choose to wear is the single most overt way in which we present ourselves to the world. The past 16 months has brought this significance starkly to the fore. As countries across the globe plunged into varying states of lockdown in an effort to combat the coronavirus, how we looked and dressed felt suddenly inconsequential. For many, this was a watershed moment, an opportunity, to renounce those items that didn't bring comfort and embrace tracksuits and pyjamas day and night, to sift through items and pass on those pieces long relegated to the backs of wardrobes and drawers, to embrace small businesses and sustainable practices, to abandon the tyranny of bras once and for all. But one year later, as we emerged from the truly bleak midwinter and a world of possibilities began slowly to open up once more, many of us rediscovered the powerful potential inherent in dressing up. We recalled that clothing can be transformative, that our attire can vastly impact our psyche and that what we wear can sometimes convey more than even words ever could. Isabella donned her widow's weeds on that winter's day in 1325 because she knew this to be true. Queens of the medieval period were that unusual thing, both essential and devoid of many avenues of power that were traditionally viewed as masculine. Royal women had to find other ways of wielding influence, including the clothes that they wore. Throughout the Middle Ages and across Europe, access to the most sumptuous of materials and the richest of hues was carefully controlled by strict legislation that limited what could and couldn't be worn. Amidst the vigorous global economic expansion of the 16th century, ideas of nationhood and foreignness began for the first time to be attributed to the production, selling and wearing of clothing. This was a world in which a person's worth could ostensibly be gleaned from what they wore. My research sets out to consider the garments created for, worn by and observed on the Queens of England and France in the 1500s, during the reign of the French King Francis I, at a pivotal point in the history of two nations that had spent centuries engaged in various states of battle. Most female consorts came from foreign lands to be wed, and with them they brought the customs and cultures of their homelands. These women therefore occupied a unique space as citizens of two countries, sometimes accepted by their adopted subjects and sometimes despised for their differences. Perhaps nowhere was this duality more conspicuous than in their attire. Much has been made of the relationship between Francis and Henry VIII of England, 16th century kings whose reigns were characterised by grudging respect and ferocious rivalry. When they met for the first time in 1520 at the spectacular Field of Cloth of Gold Summit, engineered in theory to create a lasting peace between the two countries and in reality as a vehicle for each to display his magnificence. Both were young men in their prime, bolstered by their respective retinues and dressed from head to foot in their most opulent clothing. But what of their queens? Notions of nationhood and belonging were for most people inherently bound up in what they wore. This demonstrably differed for royal women, who also had close personal ties to their motherlands and allegiances to allies scattered across the continent. Clothing, 
conceived, created, gifted, worn, bequeathed, destroyed, was in constant use in the 16th century as a means of communication, consensus and challenge. Clothing is a worn world, a world of social relations put upon the wearer's body. This is how Anne Rosalind Jones and Peter Stalubras introduced their seminal Renaissance clothing and the materials of memory, an examination of the essentiality of fabrics and clothing to the creation of Renaissance culture. Textiles played a prominent role in the conveyance of status, and clothing was in constant motion in the early modern period, circulating as a form of material and symbolic currency. In England and France, various laws were put in place by monarchs to prevent the lower classes from being able to dress in certain styles, materials and colours, whilst worn livery, in the form of uniforms or insignias adorning clothing, made servants and guild members instantly identifiable. Clothing was used to denote and determine a person's status, but in the 16th century, attire became increasingly intertwined with aspiration. Expensive styles were emulated for a comparative pittance by the middling sorts, breaking sumptuary laws and increasingly blurring the discernible lines between social classes. Queens travelling to new lands brought with them the styles of their native courts. Catherine of Aragon popularised the Spanish farthingale in England, whilst the king's second wife and Catherine's successor, Anne Boleyn, favoured French fashions, including a style of hood that, accurately or not, has now become synonymous with her. Professor Maria Hayward has traced how Anne's transition from mistress to queen was marked by her attire. Having dressed in the French style for her coronation, she increasingly chose to be seen and painted in traditionally English examples. Fashionable clothing was a crucial way for Anne to consolidate her position as queen. At the Renaissance court of France, Claude, almost perpetually pregnant, was politically sidelined in favour of the king's mother and sister, and forced to bear witness to Francis's many romantic pursuits and well-documented relationships with mistresses. The queen found refuge instead in advocating for religious reform, and was known to wear a minute devotional book of hours on a girdle at her waist, an exquisite source that survives to this day, and a sartorial demonstration of her personal piety. Like Isabella in 1325, the clothing chosen by royal women and men of French and English courts alike formed part of a conscious and calculated campaign. And though very few articles of 16th century clothing survive, by combining written and visual records we can build a picture of what was worn, when and why. Household accounts, receipts, warrants, chronicles and private letters all offer textual insights into items of attire. How garments looked, who ordered them, how much they cost and which networks of commerce came together to create them. Visually, we are fortunate that a great array of portraits and miniatures portraying these articles of clothing survive. Paintings of members of the English and French courts by the likes of Hans Holbein the Younger and Jean Clouet have been instrumental in capturing monarchs close up, shaping contemporary perceptions of some of history's most famous individuals. Holbein, responsible for creating a wealth of images of Henry, his wives and the royal court, many of which were subsequently copied by other artists and so survived to this day, has shaped our lasting impression of the king. Close your eyes, if you will, and picture him. If he's larger than life, 
an imposing figure with shoulders broad and legs splayed side by side of his codpiece, pointedly signifying his apparent virility. Arms held from his sides in the stance of a warrior. If he wears a stern expression and holds a steely gaze, draped and dressed in resplendent fabrics and surrounded by finery, then you are viewing Henry through a lens carefully created by Holbein all those centuries ago. When the painter made his most famous image of the king, his strapping subject was in reality in his 40s and in poor health. The Telegraph once described the artwork as history's greatest piece of propaganda, a glorious fantasy of the young man who once was. Portraits were the most essential visual means that the inhabitants of the past had to present themselves and shape their lasting legacies. So paintings are of clothes, jewels and backdrops as much as they are of people. Garments and accessories were used to create a deliberate image of royal potency and finished works were often named in relation to the clothing worn by the sitter. So essential was attire to the creation of a painting that subjects would often send their clothing on to the artist's studio so that the fabric and stitching might be rendered most faithfully in the finished product. This combined methodology is vital to creating an accurate understanding of clothing in the past. The hues seen in paintings diminish over time, leaving us with muted browns and sombre blacks alongside a hint or a dash of gold. But through wardrobe accounts, often maligned as some of the drier primary resources available to us today, we can see the sheer scale of colours and fabrics owned by kings and queens. Yellows, greens, russets, richest purples and brightest blues, velvets and furs and satins and silks, lace and ruffs and kirtles and doublets, cloaks trimmed with royal ermine, and gowns embroidered with stars and moons and minute pearls, and cloths of the most exquisite gold and silver. When we contextualise these accounts alongside the events we know to have occurred, we are able to see just how much the records reveal, and how much more there is to uncover. Thanks to the survival of Henry's privy purse accounts from 1529 to 1532, for example, we know that the king bought vast amounts of clothing for his Lady Anne before the two were married, part of a lively culture of sartorial gift exchange that existed, a reciprocity that formed a deeply political element of monarchic rule in its creation of a bond between giver and receiver. We know what Anne wore to her coronation as queen, we also know which items of clothing she selected for her execution three years later in 1536. Virtually all of her possessions and accounts pertaining to her were destroyed on the king's orders upon her death. So for all Anne's contemporary popularity, there is still so much we don't know and a great deal more to consider. As historians, we must be aware of the perils and pitfalls of attributing ideas too readily to the individuals we examine. Without an explicit record of emotions, we can't be certain of how the people of the past thought and felt. But in considering the clothing worn by queens at pivotal moments of history and chosen for representation in the sumptuous portraits they commissioned, my research suggests that by examining attire, we can glean unique and extraordinary insights into the motivations and mindsets of those long gone. 
As libraries and archives open their doors once more, the next phase of my project will consider the networks of commerce that conceived, created and cared for the items worn by royal women, and will ask how these individuals, often existing on the margins of dress history, themselves understood the clothing they created. We know that symbolism was rife at the Tudor and Valois courts, but how was queenly clothing and royal regalia observed throughout society? Because a queen's clothing tells two tales. The first is of the life and times, the loves and losses and trials and beliefs of the woman who possessed it and the meaning she imbued it with. But the second is a story less often told, of the individuals that conceived of an item, those that created it, others that cared for it, and those that perceived it. It is by telling both of these stories that we can expand our understanding of queenly clothing beyond the constructions, creations and confines of the royal court and its discerning eye, opening up the history of 16th century queenly dress to tell the tales of those at the centre of power and those at the peripheries. Anne Rosalind Jones and Peter Stalibras conclude that items of clothing are the materials of memory, which pass from person to person and take on lives and meanings of their own. In my closet these memories hang. Within wooden walls wait folds of fabric and furtive figures who came before. To fling open my wardrobe stores, suddenly and without warning, is to be overcome and undone by the peculiar sense of a conversation just ceased, where velvets and cottons and silks sit side by side and speak to one another, awaiting outstretched hands and new beginnings. The clothing of the past and the worn world it inhabited was just the same. The fabrics and hues and methods and practices, the items conceived and created, passed between people and places that mattered, that meant something, Everything is connected in the form of a common thread. Ella, thank you so much for joining us on the Technicast today. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing about your research and how much we can learn through these material archives that you speak about so beautifully. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a joy. Really, really, really enjoyable. Oh, the pleasure's all ours. I'm struck by so many things hearing about what clothes can tell us about not only the people who wore them, but also about the lives not pictured in the paintings that you speak about in your recording. But first, I wanted to ask you how you became interested in this rich subject area and how you found queenly clothing to begin with. I have always loved clothing. Um, I've always been very fascinated by the idea of kind of self-expression through what we wear. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say I was ever necessarily into fashion. And I think, you know, that can be quite a different thing. I always loved vintage clothing. I always loved secondhand clothing. I loved having kind of hand-me-downs from family members and things like that. But it wasn't really until I went to Leeds University that I, I feel like I discovered these avenues of, of historical research that I really just didn't 
know were available to me. So Dr. Iona McCleary was my queenship studies tutor and she really opened me up to the realisation that it was okay to consider things like film and TV as really valid historical fields of study Um, and I just didn't really know that before. And I went to Leeds for my MA as well which was in medieval history and Professor Rosalind Brown Grant was my dissertation supervisor and it was Rosalind who showed me that there was also this this avenue through dress and it opened me up to this world of Isabella who I you know talk about in my podcast and I was just so taken in by her I mean her story is incredible in itself but it was that use of clothing and I think the realization that that clothing can tell us so much about these kind of ostensibly really well-trodden, really well-known areas of history. I've also become very taken with the idea of expanding my study. So obviously I'm looking at Queens and I'm looking at the kind of royal household, but I've, I've bec- I'm really wanting to draw out the stories of the people that are more peripheral and often kind of exist a bit more on the margins of, of dress history. So the people that created the clothing, the people that cared for it, uh, the people that maybe took clothing on behalf of queens and gave them as gifts and, and passed them on and all that kind of thing. And also the influence that that people within the household could wield, um, like ladies-in-waiting, could have a very demonstrable impact on what a queen wore, and that's all really fascinating to me as well. It's incredible, those unseen histories that just seem woven into your study, and that's so exciting to hear that the direction of your research has kind of shifted from that. Looping back to your MA dissertation then, was that just focused on on Queen's clothing, or, and, or was it in the PhD research now, that the urge to decenter that study and to, and to look into the peripheries? Well, my, my MA dissertation was actually on, it was on Isabella, and it was about voice. Interesting. So I'd, yeah, so I'd written my, I, I had unfortunately done that thing where I'd got really overexcited by the dress studies, and I'd written a very specific essay on it, which obviously meant I could couldn't do my dissertation on it um but that kind of that kind of lit that fire of, of like fascination I did my MA on voice and that was actually so fascinating as well because it was kind of this idea of um what what the queen is and isn't able to say and therefore what her actions what her clothing what the items she possesses you know what that can tell us about the maybe unspoken um element of queenship but no it's it's my it's my PhD where I feel like that that particular element has really come to the fore and I do think that a big part of that is uh, some very important um, changes that have happened you know in the last year particularly that I think have reminded us of how important it is to bring all voices um, to the fore and how important it is to decenter the narrative uh, and in my case you know queenship I I will always be fascinated by, but I'm very aware and only kind of increasingly aware of how many other people and how many other places and networks and, you know, contributed to that field. And and there are there are real challenges and real difficulties in sometimes locating their voices um, if people weren't literate, if there's not a written record. But that's what I'm hoping and aiming to uncover more of in, in my PhD. That's just so exciting. 
I'm actually thinking of the, the last year in particular leads me on to my next thought, which was linking this back to our last episode of the Tenucast. Uh, we invited Rose Coffey on to look at the relationship between fashion and selfhood in the digital age, so thinking more of our contemporary moment in terms of materials, with a particular attention to Generation Z and the performance of the self. And I know these are such different time periods that we're talking about here, but I'm so interested in the resonances between 16th century material culture and fashion today and contemporary moment. Are there, are there many parallels that you can see between your work and our current moment then? Well, firstly, I loved that episode of the Technicast with Rose Coffey. Um, it was fascinating. I have spent a lot of time reassessing my relationship with things like social media and the way that we present <laughs> ourselves so it's like unnerving and brilliant um and yes like emphatically massively yes I think there's so much continuity between some of the things that I'm looking at and and our current moment and the parallels are so striking I think particularly because of the pandemic and the massive way that we have changed our relationship with clothing, you know, things like slow fashion, sustainable practices, um, even things like natural dyeing, you know, seeing so much more of that going on. We're getting so much better at reusing and reappropriating fabrics. And I think also the huge rise of things like Depop and mm. Vintage, you know, there is this, there is secondhand clothing is having a real moment and it's fantastic to see. People are gifting things more. I mean, I you know things like I would buy maybe someone a gift for their birthday and it might be a, a second-hand item and I think that perhaps at one point in our kind of in our current day would have been um maybe a little bit frowned upon or maybe not something that everyone would have understood but I think that has changed so much and that is really recent and obviously it's also well our relationship with clothing given that we've been confined to our houses for various points in time in the last 16 months and you know, the, the kind of idea of wearing your pyjama bottoms, which I am right now, and then you're wearing a kind of more socially acceptable top and it, it's even things like that. I think they're all really interesting. I've also got a personal interest that's really grown um, in the kind of the idea of objects and the meaning we associate with them and how they kind of root us in our homes. And I think there's so much continuity with the 16th century there because of course we can look at these records and especially things like wills we can see what items of clothing and what objects matter to people we know that they mattered because we can see what they did with them what you know how they stored them who they gave them to so i think all yeah there there is a there is a real consciousness of what we own, what we buy, where it comes from. And I think that is very, very um, kind of rooted in history. Thank you for that wonderful answer. I am, um, yeah, I'm seeing that too. I think we're very much reconsidering that disconnect between contemporary fashion and the folks who are making them. And yeah, I completely agree. I also, I, I love the, the idea of gifting secondhand objects and the effective pull that an object has, especially reading about it in the archives, despite not being able to touch or feel it yourself. I think that's so wonderful. And it reminds me of a, um, a bit in your recording, that beautiful image of that you explore of opening the wardrobe. And I think that's so true. That, and I love the phrasing materials of memory and how they are so imbued with sentiment. And that sentiment speaks to us as wearers. And it also speaks to others uh, through, through the kind of signals that they put out. And also that 
it also speaks to the labour and the craft of a garment's creation and creator um, that can often go unseen and threatens to be forgotten like you like you set out. Can you tell me, I wonder a little bit more about what it's like to actually go through those written records and those wills and, and what it's like to construct this unseen material history? Yeah, so Rachel Givens is um, a historian of, uh, she's a medieval historian, and she has written a really fantastic paper in the course of her research on Isabeau of Bavaria. Um, And it's, she, I I love her description of it because she, it's it's a kind of impassioned defence of um, medieval kind of accounts of, of the household and the royal wardrobe because they do often get kind of maligned as being very dry and they can you know, they can they can seem that way, they can be quite difficult to draw things out of, but, but when they do and the things that they can yield are incredible. And I'm, I mean, I think I, you know, part of, uh, part of my podcast contribution does talk a little bit about colour, but I think this is the really key thing that you can find in things like written records. Uh, we have often quite a dulled perception, I think, of what clothing might have looked like for these for these individuals because paintings do lose their colour over time you know we get quite muted a quite a muted palette and actually when you look at the records you can see the just like the sheer scale of the colours and obviously the sumptuousness of the fabrics but also I mean when I kind of sit and go through those records I think it it is you you know you do have to establish quite a good understanding of terminology and that's something that I definitely am only ever increasing I'm not really sure I'm not really sure at what point people might feel like they've kind of unlocked that because it is really really detailed things like you know looking at costs and understanding kind of inherently what that cost means when you see it written Um, but also things like the names of colors and the plants that would be used to dye fabrics and things like that that you can draw out of the records you're kind of always building this this kind of um this kind of terminology in your own head. Um, so that's always quite interesting when you're sitting with the records. And I think, you know, this is what Rachel Gibbons is kind of, she's kind of saying is um, perhaps when you initially sit down at the National Archives and you draw out your, you know, your manuscript and it's a lot, but actually the, the details within are kind of, it's what it's all about. And obviously this is massively combined with the methodology of art history, which is something I really had never done before I started my PhD. So that's also something I feel like I'm always building up. But images are really the way that we are able to kind of access that clothing because unfortunately so little survives from that period um there's really not a lot kind of globally that survives from that that kind of early modern period and the other thing that i love although i would not claim to have any skill in is the reconstruction of clothing and that's that's kind of massive and i think only will become bigger and more popular which absolutely deserves to be there are some people doing amazing work on reconstructing and using you know these very specific methods of tailoring and things like that and that's an incredible way of um kind of recreating and understanding the clothing that existed then um and it's something i love about TV and film as well because costume design is so important in that field too. So exciting, I love that. And just leading on from that, I'm so interested to hear whether you have a favourite 
queen's style or a garment that you would like to see recreated perhaps uh the the limit does not exist it's so, like <laughs> almost every time i do any research into any of these people um you know as i said i i think i'm so struck by the color and that always always stands out to me just the sheer variety of the colors that, that were worn um does kind of put my modern wardrobe to shame a little bit i think philippa of hainaut is she's quite a famous outfit that she wore which was um it was a five-piece purple velvet kind of embroidered robe and it was adorned with golden squirrels and this this is quite famous because that i mean i i would like to wear that i would wear it around my house i would i would wear it anywhere that's something that i would like to see and and you know, Philippa of Hainaut was Isabella's um, kind of daughter-in-law, I suppose, and everything Isabella wore, but that's that's kind of tied up in how extraordinary she was as a person. But one of my favourite um, kind of anecdotes, if you will, and uh, Catherine Warner's biography of Isabella is is the, the definitive work as far as I'm concerned. It's fantastic. And uh, she talks about Isabella attending the coronation of um her, her brother, King Charles of France, and his wife, uh, Jeanne d'Evreux. And Isabella attends and she's wearing this really luxurious kind of vermilion and red velvet. And she goes with Roger Mortimer, who I also have spoken about in my podcast and their kind of questionable relationship that they attend. Mortimer's not actually invited. Um, he attends anyway and he's wearing Edward's livery. And I, I just love, you know, I love what that speaks to and what that says about that moment and the kind of the scandal and the outrage. And um, it's quite a quite a call to arms to be wearing that livery on a very hot day in May as well um it's a it's quite pointed but she's fascinating to me and there's this there's this kind of this rumor that she was buried in her wedding dress and what does that say you know Mm. having having acted in the way that she did um which ultimately led to Edward II being deposed and killed in questionable circumstances um but to be buried in her wedding dress, you know, what does that say about our reconstruction of someone's legacy uh, on the basis of what they wore? And I also would have to say an honorary mention for Anne Boleyn, who is everyone's kind of favourite and fascination. But I think with Anne Boleyn, for me, it's it's really rooted in, in the destruction of so many of her belongings. Henry VIII destroyed almost everything pertaining to Anne. Um, after her execution and you know Elizabeth I obviously Anne's daughter is such a huge figure in in our history in our kind of English history and there are kind of some examples I think of the ways that Elizabeth did maintain and protect and kind of uphold her mother's memory in the ways that she was able to do um, but I always wonder what would have happened to Anne's clothing had, had that not occurred and, and how would they have survived and how would Elizabeth have appropriated them because I have no doubt she would have and we know that clothing, as it does to us today, it really mattered and it meant something. Thank you for that really generous answer. I loved all of those descriptions, Ella, and I cannot wait to the next in-person Technique Congress where I think we will all be dressed in incredible <laughs> gold um, outfits with gold squirrels embroidered on. I cannot wait to see that. I think there's a new Technique uniform. <laughs> or our pyjamas, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I think, yeah, definitely the velvet um, with the gold squirrels on top and then pyjama bottoms. <laughs> on. The- <laughs> 
Um, Ella, thank you so much for sharing your research with us today and for speaking with me. It's been an absolute delight. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Technicast. We'd love to hear what you thought. You can find us on Twitter at Technicast and you can also rate and review this podcast and share it so more people can listen to these PhD researchers like Ella and hear about their incredible work. If you would like to be featured on the Technicast, please email Julian and I at technicaster at gmail.com and you can also look out for our themed call for papers in the Techni newsletter and on Twitter. We'll see you back here next time with some special episodes as part of the Techni Annual Congress where we'll be looking at the theme of futures. Thanks again to Ella for sharing her current work with us and to Techni for their ongoing support. 